This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up... Journalist John Crace dissects Boris Johnson's short-lived humility following the publication of Sue Gray's Partygate report. Hadley Freeman shares some defining moments during her time in court reporting on one of the showbiz trials of the decade, the climax to the deliciously entertaining Wagatha Christie saga. And finally... Tom Rasmussen opens up on the benefits, difficulties and complexities of life in an open relationship. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now... In light of Boris Johnson's statement following the publication of Sue Gray's Partygate report, John Crace calculated the Prime Minister's remorse to have lasted all of 30 seconds. Could anything included in Sue Gray's report possibly have been enough to flush out a PM devoid of shame? Read by Dan Starkey Well, there we had it. It had been heavily briefed, that Boris Johnson would be the model of remorse for his statement to the Commons on the Sue Gray report. But that Boris lasted barely 30 seconds, and what we got thereafter was the classic narcissist's non-apology. A tawdry torrent of self-pity. A man more sinned against than sinner. A good man cast adrift in a world he barely understood. The convict began by saying he was grateful to Gray. I bet he was. There was little doubt she had pulled her punches. She was a career civil servant, after all, who had spent a lifetime covering up other people's messes. Yes, there were some telling details in her report. The wine stains, the puke, the brawling, the dodging out of sight of CCTV cameras at 4am, the altered invitations, all of which suggested that everyone knew they were acting against the law. But there was no smoking gun or not one that could flush out a Prime Minister devoid of shame. I don't say this to absolve myself, Johnson said repeatedly. Except he did, and time and again he found himself worthy of total absolution. The fixed penalty notice he had received? That was for something that was never a party. But he accepted his martyrdom. Not He would go to his grave believing he had done nothing wrong. Not least because, as the police hadn't busted him for any further crimes, then he couldn't have committed any. Nor did people understand quite how large Number 10 was, so it was impossible to keep tabs on everyone. Which was weird, because other Prime Ministers have complained how small the building is, and he had just been showing good leadership by turning up to the illegal leaving parties. It had never occurred to him that some of the parties might go on for hours. The convict had always wondered why there was so much noise and the cleaners were complaining about having to clear up so many empties. Johnson ended by saying, The bad old days were over. The entire senior management team had been changed. It hadn't occurred to him that he might be in any way responsible for the chaos and law-breaking in Number 10, And from now on, he was going to be extra nice to the little people. He might even speak to them. We are humbled, he said, with a dismissive, regal wave of his arm. Except he wasn't at all. You need empathy and a state of grace to feel humbled. 
he didn't even feel humiliated, which any normal person would have been. There was no hint of repentance or sincere apology, just delusional ramblings. A man far more dangerous than a serial liar, an amoral sociopath capable of believing any falsehood to be true if it fits his solipsistic worldview. Nothing will shake his belief that he never lied to Parliament or anyone else. The truth is just a matter of perception. Kia Starmer tried to prise open the gaping cracks in the convict's logic. That's how the light gets in. The report was a monument to hubris. Even though it appeared to have been heavily edited in parts, it still had enough in it for any reasonable person to expect the Prime Minister to go. Did Johnson never wonder why everyone was permanently pissed and it was impossible to find anyone doing any real work after 4pm? How come he never looked at tables, weighted down with booze, and wondered what the fuck was going on? And the idea of the government's ethics adviser bringing her own karaoke machine into work was straight out of the thick of it. By now, though, the convict could no longer maintain even the facade of giving a shit. He tugged at his toddler haircut and smirked. Couldn't Starmer just let go of his sanctimonious obsession? He was fed up with everyone droning on about party this and party that. No one was going to take him down. Top of the world, Ma. And Sue, Johnson lapsed into using just the first person, had investigated the party in the Downing Street flat exhaustively. As in, not at all. Labour clearly believed she'd been nobbled. But Johnson just wanted everyone to move on. To a place where no one could eat or pay their fuel bills. The Tory response was muted. There were a few of the usual quarter wits. Step forward, Peter Bone, Michael Fabricant and Craig McKinley. To say the Prime Minister was a paragon of virtue and that no one could expect anyone to have obeyed the rules as they were all so complicated. But only Tobias Elwood called out the convict as a liar who was destroying the image of the Tory party. We will lose the next election, he said, as several of his own side heckled him. They are as truth-averse as their leader. The rest of the Tory backbenchers made their excuses and left. Anything to escape the scene of the crime. Within 40 minutes of the statement starting, the benches were less than a quarter full, though the stony-faced cabinet had to stay and take their punishment beating. The question is, what happens next? Do the Tories feel lucky enough to put their letters into the 1922 committee? Or do they stick with the man who will drag them even further into the dirt? A couple of hours later, the convict was giving a press conference in Downing Street. If anything, he was now even more deconstructed. Just phoning it in and openly laughing in journalists' faces as he brazenly made no attempt to answer their questions. As if he believed he had got away scot-free on a technicality. His answer to allegations of lying to the Parliament and the country was yet more lies. It was somehow a fitting symmetry. He can't help himself. The closest he got to coming unstuck was when the Guardian's Jessica Elgott asked him if he was not bothered that his press officers had openly lied to the media about parties they themselves had been at. It was like this. His media team were like him. They genuinely believed their own lies. The vomit in their waste bins was work vomit. My job is to serve the country, Johnson said. In which case, why doesn't he do us all a favour and bugger off? I've got to love you and leave you. Something he said to every wife and lover. He looked at his watch. Past four. Past wine o'clock. Time for a drink. There was going to be one hell of a party in the Downing Street flat tonight. That was Boris Johnson's Partygate Remorse Lasts All of 30 Seconds by John Crace. Read by Dan Starkey. Next. Whilst most celebrity trials involve allegations about serious crimes, putting a kink in their enjoyability factor... The Wagatha Christie trial allows you to indulge in its triviality. It has been regarded by many as tabloid culture's magnum opus. Whilst Hadley Freeman sat courtside, she observed that, 
For all its silliness and surrounding irreverence, the Wagatha Christie trial marked a turning point in red-top journalism and provided incredible insight into 21st century Britain and its intersecting relationships between football, celebrity and the tabloids. Is Wagatha Christie silly? Absolutely. Is it irrelevant? Absolutely not. Read by Emma Stannard. This is not entertainment. Rebecca Vardy's barrister, Hugh Tomlinson QC, declared at the opening of the trial, referred to at the Royal Courts of Justice as Vardy versus Rooney, but known everywhere else as the Wagatha Christie trial. To borrow a favourite linguistic flourish of Vardy's, not being funny, but what are you on, my learned friend? For seven days, I sat in the front row of the multi-million pound libel trial and, to be honest with you, another favourite phrase of Vardy's, a phrase which led Colleen Rooney's barrister, David Sherborne QC, to retort, well, I'd much rather you're honest because you are sitting in a witness box. In all my many years of covering fashion and celebrities in this paper, this was the purest form of entertainment I have ever seen. Celebrity trials, from O.J. Simpson to Johnny Depp, are always fascinating because seeing a famous person in the dock, exposed and vulnerable, forced to answer the most awkward of questions, is like catching them on the toilet. Who can look away? Yet most celebrity trials involve allegations about serious crimes, murder, domestic abuse, sexual assault, which puts a kink in the enjoyability factor. This is where Wagatha triumphs over all previous celebrity trials and possibly every other celebrity story ever. It is high drama, but with the lowest possible of stakes. Why on earth are we here? Sherborne, a Melvin Bragg lookalike, asked in his opening statement. The answer, Mr Sherborne, is we are asking who Vardy was referring to in her text messages when she was talking about a nasty bitch. We are trying to ascertain whether Vardy deliberately sat in the wrong seats at the 2016 Euros. And most of all, we are asking in these royal courts of justice if Rooney was right to block Vardy on Instagram. Or was she being, as Vardy said at the time, a cunt? After however many years of non-stop news misery, this trial has been a balm on the soul of Britain. Whoever ultimately wins, and the judge, Mrs Justice Karen Stain, is expected to give her verdict in several weeks, the Queen should give damehoods to both Rooney and Vardy for services to their country. Wagatha, despite Rooney's insistence that she thinks the term is silly, I'm afraid there is no other name for this glorious hullabaloo, is about many things. It's about social media, the tabloid press, the Football Association, FA, celebrity. Side note, it's incredible to me how often I've heard people denigrate the case as an embarrassing guilty pleasure. Is Wagatha silly? Absolutely. Is it irrelevant? Absolutely not. But it's also about something else. And it was only by being in the courtroom that I understood it was about something bigger. Something almost, no, genuinely mythic. Wagatha is not just about the wags, a term that is, Rooney said in her testimony, not disrespectful. So consider that the canonical ruling. Wagatha is about all of us. Before we get to us, let's talk about them. On the one side of the bench, there was Rooney. Small, pretty, and strong as absolute nails. And on the other, there was Vardy, sleek and highly strung, a Siamese cat in shoulder pads. The two women had matching pouts and contoured cheek makeup, but the differences between them were as glaring as the shine off Vardy's poker straight hair. Rooney gazed serenely at Vardy during the three days she was in the witness box. Vardy looked at Rooney only once throughout the whole trial, when she was asked under oath if Rooney was right to describe her as a leaker. No, she was wrong, Vardy replied fiercely, whirling towards Rooney. This end-of-season episode of Footballers' Wives did not stint on the drama. 
Vardy dabbed her eyes in the witness box when recalling the mean things people online said about her children and collapsed entirely when Sherborne pointed to alleged inconsistencies in her claims that she doesn't leak stories to the Sun. Rooney didn't even blink when asked repeatedly about her husband's infidelities. Wayne, pink and pertubed as an undercooked potato, turned up every day, but his gaze never wavered from the middle distance, and the only suggestion that he heard the humiliating questions his wife was forced to answer was his neck gently changing tint from pink to fuchsia. One afternoon, I spotted him outside the court signing autographs for some Everton fans, and I asked him what he was thinking about in court all day while he stared into space. Oh, I don't want to answer that. I haven't given any interviews about all this, he said, alarmed, and ran back to the safer embrace of his fans. Rooney, it's hard not to suspect, may have called in all of her husband's many debts to her to make him sit through this. In person, Wayne has the sweetly guileless expressions of a six-year-old and the complexion of a 60-year-old barfly. Given how ubiquitous coverage of Wagatha has been in this country, some laughed at his claim that sitting in the courtroom this week is the first time I'm hearing almost everything on this case. But I believe him. My wife explained that she believed the stories from the private Instagram account were getting leaked. I'm not big on social media and I didn't want to get involved, he said. And looking at where his wife's suspicion led them all five years later, who could blame him? Yet even those who have keenly followed the case from the beginning may well have become lost in labyrinthine details of this 21st century jaundice versus jaundice, which now involves every element of modern British culture. From Peter Andre, to I'm a celebrity get me out of here, to Roy Hodgson, to Soho Farmhouse. So for those people, and for Wayne, a quick recap of how we got to where we were when this trial began. Ostensibly, our story begins on 9th of October 2019, when Rooney published what the lawyers called the Reveal Post to her millions of followers across all of her social media platforms. She wrote that for several years she had suspected someone of selling stories from her private Instagram account to The Sun, such as about her outings to private members club Soho Farmhouse. Employing heretofore hidden sleuthing brilliance, she posted fake stories on Instagram. She was looking into gender selection for her next baby. The family's basement had flooded and alternately blocked and unblocked her followers, restricting access to the fake stories until there was only one account viewing these stories, which then appeared in the sun. This, Rooney wrote, proved she now had her culprit. It's Rebecca Vardy's account. The wags have become associated with many things over the years, from juicy couture tracksuits to Balenciaga handbags. This marked the first time a wag claimed ownership of a form of punctuation. I use dots a lot, she confirmed in her court testimony. Rooney broke the internet with this post, but the internet mended itself fast enough for Vardy to post her denial that she sells stories. I'm not being funny, but I don't need the money, she wrote. Given Jamie reportedly earns about £120,000 a week at Leicester City, this is perhaps the only comment she has made about this case that no one has contested. Rooney refused to back down. So did Vardy. And in June 2020, she launched a High Court defamation case. In English law, the burden of proof falls on the person who made the defamatory claim meaning Rooney had to prove what she claimed. Matters did not start well for her when, in November 2020, in the first stage of libel action, Mr Justice Warby declared that it didn't matter that Rooney had carefully written Rebecca Vardy's account. The ordinary reader, the justice said, would still assume that Vardy had been selling stories. This made the case look unwinnable for Rooney as she would now have to prove that Vardy personally passed on stories about her. But the upside to that ruling for Rooney was it meant her lawyers could now focus on Vardy's interactions with the media to show that, on balance of probability, Vardy sold stories. 
The game evened up in February of this year when Vardy's WhatsApp messages between Vardy and her agent, Caroline Watt, were disclosed, which included texts from Vardy saying, leak the story, and about one of Rooney's Instagram stories, would love to leak those stories, kiss. If they weren't exactly smoking guns, they had, to borrow a phrase from Rooney's barrister Sherborne, the whiff of cordite. And these weren't even all the messages. Only days after Watt was instructed to disclose the messages for the trial, she, alas, dropped her phone in the North Sea while filming the coastline. And many of Vardy's messages mysteriously vanished when she was trying to send them to her lawyers. Yet some messages did escape Vardy's IT disaster and the North Sea, such as one from Watt to Vardy after Rooney posted a message on Instagram complaining that someone she trusted was leaking stories about her. It wasn't someone she trusted, it was me, laughing emoji. The cordite thickened. In April, two weeks before the trial, Vardy admitted it was possible that Watt had leaked the stories, but insisted she herself was not involved. Watt did not appear at the trial, citing ill health, which made me suspect that perhaps she too had been dispatched into the North Sea. This story really began long before 2019. Some future historians may date its origins to the 2018 World Cup in Russia, when Vardy and several other wags were photographed together, which, according to Rooney's lawyer, Vardy secretly set up with the paparazzi without telling the other women. Vardy denies this, so it's extremely unfortunate that on the night the photo was taken, she sent what multiple WhatsApps about the women and a photographer. We may have to walk to the restaurant, kiss. Might be a good pic of us walking down, kiss. Others will go back a little further to the now fateful 2016 Euros, when Vardy sat behind Rooney during a game in seats that weren't hers, because, Rooney's lawyers allege, she knew it would make for a better paparazzi shot. Vardy also denies this. But the story really begins at the 2006 World Cup. Back then, photos of Rooney, Victoria Beckham, Alex Curran, wife of Steven Gerrard, Ellen Rives, former partner of Frank Lampard, and Carly Zucker, now Cole, wife of Joe, walking the streets of Baden-Baden, suddenly dominated the British media, outraging the FA and changing the life of a 25-year-old woman then called Rebecca Nicholson forever. The World Cup is when WAG culture became identifiable, aspirational and monetizable. It also became wholly bound up with the tabloids, which printed daily photos of them. And the snowflake that first fell in Baden-Baden became an avalanche, which last month barreled through Court 13 at the Royal Courts of Justice. Because libel cases are not tried in front of a jury, The other journalists and I were sat in the jury box, about two yards from Vardy and her team of lawyers, three yards from the Roonies, and facing directly opposite the witness box. This proved a little awkward at times, such as on the first day when Vardy sat on the stand facing me and was asked by an apparently outraged Sherborne why she told the News of the World in 2004 that Peter Andre is hung like a small chipolata. Did you feel strongly about the size of Peter Andre's manhood that it had to be made public? thundered Sherborne. His point was that Vardy has form in selling stories about people's private lives to the papers. But has there ever been a more innocent bystander in a libel trial than poor Peter Andre? The Roonies kept admirably straight faces during this and every exchange. The journalists were less composed, and a mass outbreak of sniggering struck the jury box and the court, for the first and far from the last time, reprimanded us for laughing. Once, Vardy seemed to revel in her low-level celebrity status, writing guest columns in The Sun and appearing on reality TV shows such as I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. But during the trial, she dressed in an emphatically unwaggy way. All centre partings, long dresses and jackets with two sharp shoulders all bought from the Joan of Arc section of Selfridges. 
Rooney stayed truer to her usual style, in girlish dresses and high street suits, pairing the surgical boot for her fractured foot with an impeccably waggish selection of single Chanel and Gucci loafers. Much snobbery had been directed at the wags over the years, but to all the people who laugh at how they dress, I ask you this. Have you ever seen a British barrister all done up in his powdered wig? Is that really less absurd than a woman from Liverpool with a massive designer handbag? Because this wasn't just a battle of the wags, but also of the wigs. And both sides had their own special lingo. With the wigs, it's all my lord this and your ladyship that. Whereas with Rooney and Vardy, everyone is either fuming or buzzing. It was like hearing two very different languages spoken towards each other. And Vardy made a small smile whenever the barristers attempted to get their fruity lips around her salty texts. And then you replied, Mrs Vardy, fucking ridiculous kiss, Tomlinson quoted solemnly. Tomlinson was one of the founders of Hacked Off, the campaign for reform of the British press, so unlikely to be a fan of the sun. Instead, he prefers the works of French philosopher Gilles Deleuze, which he occasionally translates, and I wondered if he had been teaching Vardy the finer points of Deleuze when he asked her what she meant when she messaged what that she wanted to leak a story. I didn't mean leak, Vardy said. Sherborne later picked up on this on behalf of Rooney and asked her, Can we agree if a sentence reads that way, that's what it means? No, Vardy replied. The French philosophers would be proud. You're listening to Is Wagatha Christie Silly? Absolutely. Is it irrelevant? Absolutely not. By Hadley Freeman. We're going to take a short break now. However, we'll be back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to Weekend. Now... Time for part two of Hadley Freeman's article detailing her experience courtside during the Wagatha Christie trial. Read by Emma Stannard. Sherborne is louder, brasher and tanner with a reputation for defending celebrities and being photographed with them. He represented Johnny Depp when he lost his libel case against The Sun last year, so he too is unlikely to be a fan of the red top. Despite being paid what I was reliably told was well into the six figures for this case, both barristers confused Vardy and Rooney's names. Women, so hard to tell apart. And Tomlinson in particular appeared to struggle to understand the finer details of Instagram, which surely should be within his pay grade. But Sherborne earned his fee when he managed to keep a straight face on the third day when he asked Vardy how she felt about Rooney after the reveal post. Sad, Vardy replied. Really, he huffed. And then he read out an interview Vardy gave the Daily Mail the day after the post. Arguing with Colleen Rooney would be as pointless as arguing with a pigeon. You can tell it that you are right and it's wrong, but it's still going to shit in your hair, he harumphed. Reader, I laughed and was again told off by the court. 
Vardy claimed that some of the quotes attributed to her in the press over the years are just nonsense, but I do hope she said that pigeon line. A large part of this trial was spent trying to untangle the gorgon knot that is footballers, their wives and the media. Whenever anyone referred to the press or the media in this trial, they meant the Daily Mail, the Mirror and most of all the Sun. These are the only papers on the WAG's radar, to the point that when Vardy was told by her media adviser that I was from The Guardian, she looked as perplexed as if I was covering the trial for Horse and Hound magazine. Vardy enjoyed a mutually beneficial relationship with The Sun. She posed for staged paparazzi shots and gave interviews, and they ran puff pieces with her and referred to her as Queen of the Wags. This is the quid pro quo of entertainment journalism. By contrast, the Roonies, being Liverpudlian and more private by nature anyway, never talk to the sun and are frequently trashed in that paper. Vardy wrote a diary of her time at the 2016 Euros for the Sun and she was suspected by Rooney and some of the other wags of being the source for the Sun's The Secret Wag column, which described footballers' infidelities and the wag's plastic surgery. Vardy denies this, but it took Sherbourne about five minutes to get her to admit that she passed on a story to what about Jamie's former teammate Danny Drinkwater being arrested for drunk driving so that she would leak it to the sun. But that, she told Sherbourne, was because I'm deeply affected by drink driving. Vardy's WhatsApp to what at the time? I want paying for this. Kiss. And OK, she conceded, some of her old WhatsApps look as if she was encouraging Watt to pass on other stories. About which footballer was shagging which other footballer's wife, about which wag had a miscarriage. But that was just her having a gossip. Sherborne asked what she meant in yet another WhatsApp to Watt when she said, can we not leak a story? Kiss. I meant I wanted to do a story about positive body image, Vardy replied. Do you not know what the word leak means? Sherborne asked. As there were no good answers to that question, Vardy wisely stayed silent. The FA learned at Baden-Baden that a gaggle of wags, a waggle, is a front-page photo. So they separate the wags at games to keep media attention on the sport. But at the 2016 Euros, Vardy sat herself behind Rooney and was duly photographed. Harpreet Robertson, then the family liaison officer for the FA, testified that when she told Vardy she was in the wrong seats, it led to an unidentified member of Vardy's party to reply, we can sit where we like, fuck off. When Sherborne asked Vardy about this exchange, she rolled her eyes and said, Mrs. Robertson took an instant dislike to me. Why would she take an instant dislike to you? He asked. I don't know, Vardy replied. The husbands visibly, palpably wanted to stay well out of this fight. And last May, Wayne sent a dove to Jamie via the romantic medium of a newspaper column in which he wrote that Jamie should be in the England team. I know some will be surprised at this, especially with the legal case between my wife and Jamie's wife, but this is my honest football opinion. But no doves were to be found in the courtroom. In his unexpectedly confident testimony, Wayne said that at the 2016 Euros, Roy Hodgson asked him, as the team's captain, to speak to Mr Vardy about issues regarding his wife and to ask his wife to calm down. The FA didn't want any newspaper columns, he said, referring to Vardy's Euro column in The Sun. I am sat here under oath. I 100% spoke to Mr Vardy, he said. Alas, the one day Jamie turned up was the day Wayne testified and it was Jamie's honest football opinion that his former team captain was talking nonsense. He never spoke to me about Becky's media work at Euro 2016. Shortly after issuing that statement, not as a sworn testimony but via the possibly less legally binding method of a press release from his lawyers, he and his wife left the courtroom. 
When their lawyer explained their absence to the court by saying that Rebecca didn't feel well, Colleen tried and failed to swallow a smile. In the greatest film ever made about female rivalry, Paul Verhoeven's 1995 masterpiece Showgirls, one character famously says, There's always someone younger and hungrier coming down the stairs after you. Vardy, 40, was not younger than Rooney, 35, but she had been hungry for a long time. In her testimony, Rooney said she struggled when the family moved to the US while her husband played for DC United. Because I've never moved more than 45 minutes down the road from my parents. Vardy was kicked out of home by her mother when she was 16. Rooney had been with Wayne since she was 16. Vardy met Jamie when she was 32 and had already been married twice and had two children. For these reasons and more, she is very different from most of the other wags, who, despite their collective reputation for flashiness, stay largely out of the limelight these days. Sure, they all have Instagram accounts and they write occasional columns, but these are invariably about their children, or mental health or well-being, all safely controversy-free subjects. What they very much do not do is write columns which imply they're as interesting as the players. Becky Vardy's Euro Diary. Or Court the Paparazzi, because they know the FA doesn't want that. The world of the wags is a traditional one, in which the women stay at home with the kids and shop with their husband's money. Despite Vardy's insistence that she doesn't sell stories because she doesn't need the money, Repeatedly in her WhatsApp messages, she frets about how much she is or isn't being paid for maybe or maybe not leaking stories. She has denied that she ever sold stories for money. It was just a fleeting thought. But, she later testified, I never wanted to rely on my husband for money. The Vardis and the Roonies have very different marriages. Jamie only made it to court once but he and Vardy spent the whole time with their arms entwined under the table. The Roonies sat together, but only occasionally conversed, with Rooney frequently writing urgently in her notebook during the testimonies, and Wayne only looking happy when he could get outside and talk with the fans who waited for him every day on the steps. Vardy refused to sign any autographs the one day he was in court, keeping a tight hold of his wife's hand instead. Wayne testified that, during the 2016 Euros, Jamie and Vardy FaceTimed so much that she was almost there with the team. By contrast, he said, he and Rooney hadn't discussed her plan to unmask the leaker because my wife is an independent woman. Nevertheless, he was there with her every day and he testified on her behalf while Vardy was left to cry on her lawyer's shoulders. Colleen Rooney described Vardy's WhatsApp messages about her as evil, and they certainly seemed to be the words of someone whose first instinct is to scrap for what she wants. When Watt messaged her that Rooney had blocked her on Instagram, Vardy replied, What a cunt. Kiss. If Rooney has claimed ellipses in this case, then Vardy can definitively lay claim to the sign-off. Kiss. Her lowest moment probably came when she and Watt were discussing how to find out if Rooney blocked Vardy because she suspected her of being the leaker. I never usually message her and say hi. Maybe I should say something about Rosie. Kiss. Vardy wrote, referring to Colleen Rooney's 14-year-old sister who passed away in 2013. If using someone's dead sister to ascertain why they blocked you on social media wasn't sufficiently punchy, Vardy followed that message up less than two minutes later with Not having her bad mouth me to anyone. If she's doing that, my God, she will be sorry. Kiss. In Rooney's witness statement, she has a whole section on Vardy's desire to be famous which she says was as much of a factor in her suspecting Vardy to be the leaker as Vardy's relationship with the son.
Vardy said in court that she was forced by her ex-husband to do the 2004 kiss and tell about Peter Andre, but she was presumably not forced by any of her husbands to appear on I'm a Celebrity in 2017 or Dancing with the Stars in 2021. When the original WAGs were photographed in Baden-Baden, Vardy was working for a timeshare company and about to get divorced for the second time. This was the era in which being the glamorous girlfriend of a footballer was held up as the ultimate aspiration. And it was at this moment that she seems to have become more focused about what she wanted from life. One year later, she started a relationship with Luke Foster, a lower league footballer. A few years later, she met Jamie Vardy, who was in the early stages of his remarkable rise from non-league striker to late-blooming Premier League superstar. And it was soon after this point that the tabloids, especially The Sun, began to pitch the Vardys as the new Beckhams, the new glamorous king and queen of football. But as both of the Roonies emphasised in their testimonies, they have been in this game for a long time. And Colleen not only knows the rules about how wags should behave, but she, as the wife of England's best player for a generation, has set them. It's not a coincidence that during Colleen's reign, the Wags have maintained a greater distance from the press than they did when the Beckhams were on top. In her first 2016 Euros diary for The Sun, Vardy wrote, I felt like the new girl at school, and it seems like she thought she could rewrite the rules. She was wrong. In her WhatsApp messages from the 2018 World Cup, she appears to be fretting that some of the women will put the group photo of the wags on their Instagram pages before the paparazzo can get it to the press. She was playing with 2006 tools, the tabloids, in a social media era. Wanting a group photo of the wags also shows the ongoing influence of Baden-Baden, even though today's wags have been so successfully hidden by the FA that Watt had to WhatsApp Vardy for help in identifying them in a photo. And while Vardy was cultivating alliances with journalists from The Sun, none of whom gave oral evidence in her defence, Rooney was setting her trap on Instagram all of her own. Vardy wanted positive press coverage and to be the queen wag. Instead, she has been denounced as a leaker. Not since Barbara Streisand sued a photographer to suppress a photo of her house on the internet, thereby bringing the world's attention to that photo, has a legal case gone so badly for a claimant. Never mind the Streisand effect. Launching misguided legal cases will surely now be known as the Vardy mentality. Why did she pursue this when she had so much to hide? My theory is she thought she could brazen it out. But Rooney, I think, saw the bigger picture. Even if she loses this case, she's already won the war, and she surely knows it. Due to the trial being extended, she and Wayne didn't turn up for the final day in court because, their lawyer said, they had a previous travel arrangement with their children, i.e. a holiday. Not even the judge begrudged them for that. Wagatha is such a great insight into 21st century Britain, with its intersecting relationships between football, celebrity and the tabloids. And to anyone sneering at Vardy for her Instagram messages, or Rooney for her Instagram sleuthing, let he who has never sent a bitchy text cast the first stone. And how else do we find out things about one another these days but through social media? But Wagatha is about something more timeless too. The Greek myths are full of warnings against the pursuit of self-glory and the dangers of underestimating a rival. And, like Icarus, Vardy flew too close to the sun. On the last day of the trial, she firmly reprimanded a journalist sitting next to me who she somehow knew was from The Sun, for running a story about her plans to move to the US, which she said was cruel and untrue. Throughout the trial, Vardy glanced often at the journalists sitting near her, looking at us to see how we were reacting to Rooney's testimony. And she panicked when she caught me looking at what she was writing on a pad of paper. It was a doodle of a flower for the record. 
Meanwhile, Rooney never even glanced at the press, and she remains on her throne. When you come at the Queen, you'd best not miss. There might always be someone younger and hungrier behind you on the stairs. But, as Rooney wrote on her Instagram when she suspected Vardy was leaking stories, don't play games with a girl who can play better. That was, is Wagatha Christie silly? Absolutely. Is it irrelevant? Absolutely not. By Hadley Freeman. Read by Emma Stannard. Finally. When Tom Rasmussen and their partner of seven years decided to have an open relationship, they knew it would be exciting and revitalising. But the danger of losing what they had was only too real. Ignoring their mother's warning of, well, what if he finds someone better than you? The couple threw themselves into the agony and the ecstasy of an open relationship. Here's what happened. Oh, and just to say, this piece does include some descriptions of a sexual nature. Read by Dan Starkey. My mother will kill me for writing this article. She doesn't get why my partner and I would want to have sex with other people. Why, God, why would we want to question a structure as sacred and, let's face it, successful as monogamy? As she said, when I first mentioned I'd been on a date with someone who wasn't my long-term partner, well, what if he finds... Someone better than you? Brutal. Mothers really know how to find your deepest insecurity before wringing it, and you, out like a dishcloth. She wasn't wrong, though. What if he does find someone better than me? That was, admittedly, the first question I had when my partner and I decided to sleep with other people a year ago. Not only that, we decided it would be fine if we went on dates with other people, too. One, two, ten, as long as we kept, as every pop psychologist whose bestseller I've never read will tell you, communication streams open. The first date with someone else was mine. It was with an incredibly hot guy who I'd met at a fashion party, because I'm glamorous like that. He flirted so hard it was essentially impossible to say no. My partner and I discussed it. Let's just see what happens. Naturally, I was nervous. The guy was hot. I was sweaty. It was the first date I'd been on in way over half a decade. What on earth do you talk about? I messaged a friend who was a very chic dater. Just ask him his most problematic opinion. Honestly, it's the best opener. I wore black, because I always wear black, and I unbuttoned my shirt one lower than usual. I kissed my partner and my dog, Celine Dion, goodbye, and off I went. The date was fun. The sex was wild. Not better or worse, but invigorating in its difference. Kissing was, bizarrely, harder than anything else, because a kiss with a stranger these days feels more intimate, and until then intimacy had been reserved only for my partner. When I arrived home that night after sleeping with the first person who wasn't my boyfriend in seven years, I felt simply glad to climb into bed next to him. But also, perhaps, like I was beginning to undo three decades of conditioning towards monogamy. A monogamy which, until then, I'd held on to so tightly it was as likely to suffocate me or my partner as the worrisome potential of finding someone better. See, the thing about our monogamous relationship was that the desire we had for others never went away. It was simply annexed in our brain, right there next to Catholicism and the bad exes. That's not to say it was repressed. I don't know a single person in a monogamous relationship who doesn't flirt, have crushes, perhaps overstep the mark in someone's DMs. A lot of people cheat too. It's been this way for eons, and it will be this way for eons to come, or until the next pesky mass extinction event hits, and annexing this desire is perfectly fine. But when you simply ask the question, but why, finding a solid answer becomes difficult. The day after I'd consummated our open relationship, we packed a bag and drove to the countryside for a friend's baby's christening. 
The atmosphere in the car as we drove out of London was one of deep, icy tension. We could not seem to find the right song to narrate the moment for the whole 90-minute trip, until I burst and said, OK, we fucked. We decided, there and then, on the A419 on the way to celebrate the choices of some dear friends who had done what they were supposed to do and moved to the countryside to raise their perfect child, that this open thing was a terrible idea. My partner is the love of my life. Something, perhaps the only thing, except that blondes really do have more fun, I feel sure of. A climate crisis brings daily anxiety. The newspapers are littered with transphobia. The government goes beyond incompetence to arrive at somewhere between casual cruelty and calculated fascism. And on days where it feels as if there is very little to live for, just looking at him reminds me that there is something so good in the world. Something with meaning. See, I am, and always have been, a sucker for love, romance and utter dedication. A paradox with my ever-intensifying queer politic. For a long time, it was me who had a desperate stake in our monogamy. I am the kind of person who people describe as so attractive, but because of my hairy belly and flagrant femininity, it's often followed by, I'm always attracted to people over bodies. Well, good for you. But for me, attraction has always found me in spite of my body, not because of it. And plainly put, my boyfriend has both. Charm. Vigour and abs. Now, I don't want to be shallow. I wouldn't want to say that the only reason I clung tightly to monogamy was because I'm a six and he's a nine. It's also a Catholic upbringing, every bit of culture I've consumed, the fact I believed I was, like every gay from a small town, Carrie Bradshaw, and I was looking for can't-live-without-each-other love, because really, I'd never felt like I'd really been properly loved before, by anyone romantic or not. And so, when I built futures in my head, they were monogamous. It was all I had ever seen. And I had made love, commitment and true romance all synonymous with monogamy. At the christening we barely spoke. On the outside we were still the perfect gay couple, cooing over the baby, congratulating our friends, telling jokes only marginally over the edge of inappropriate for a christening, And for that day, everything appeared blissfully normal. But normality can be suffocating. On the way home, in the car, we broke. Oh my God, that was so normal, we can't cope. So, we checked ourselves into a cheap hotel that night, halfway between London and the Cotswolds, got absolutely hammered, and defined the rules of our new setup. And at that point, there were no rules. Just communication and that we can stop whenever either of us wants. The second person I had sex with approached me in a bar and described what he wanted to do to me. I'd never felt a turn-on like it. Not that I'm not turned on by my partner, because various types of desire of turn-on are not mutually exclusive. Desire, as I'm learning, exists on various planes, in various spaces. Herein lay a huge learning curve. In an open relationship, you begin to experience totally varied and different types of desire to the type of desire you feel in a monogamous setup. I've had fast sex, slow sex, hot sex, sex I regret. I've made love to a stranger and had feelingless sex with a good friend. The more people we told, the more we were asked my mother's fated question. How do you know he won't find someone better than you? After pushing back, I realised this wasn't my friends and my mother telling me I was shit, and my partner could, and perhaps should, find another better partner. It was that everyone worries about this too, in their own relationships. We're all terrified that we are phonies, and that if someone else came along, we would be exposed and left to become the Miss Havisham type we were always destined to be. The truth is, I don't know he won't find someone better than me. But can you know that in a monogamous relationship either? No. In fact, the answer, after a year of making mistakes and communicating about them in ways we never did before, is that it's liberating to accept that. It's freeing to see the end, because in seeing the end, 
you have a reason to keep choosing the relationship. And to me, it has become an absurd claim that it would be possible to find someone better than him. Because a partnership, a love, a life that took seven years to build, cannot be torn apart by something as new and naive as lust, and, at most, momentary love. They are different emotions. They both provide rich experience, but they are in no way comparable. If anything, my tendencies towards jealousy and self-doubt have simmered away somewhat, because here was our get-out clause, and we are still in. It's easier for queer couples, a heterosexual friend told me after I told her, and I think, for countless reasons, this is true. Like the fact the centre still sees our relationships as fringe, the fact that sex for a lot of queer people is a mode of finding community, touch and family. The fact that we were kept out of normative conventions of relationships until a brutally recent seven years ago. But, at the same time, there is still the same fear, the same worry, the same risk of loss. So easier feels like too easy a word. Perhaps more accepted. Culturally, we always think about the rush of the new. Those heady days when you meet your partner and every move they make drives you to distraction. Then we do the merry dance of less sex, less communication, less fun, more bills, more plans, more stress, until we die or someone leaves. And yes, with every new partner I've been lucky enough to have an experience with over this moment in our relationship, I've experienced the rush of the new. But the rush of the new spills over into my primary partnership too. New dynamics form. Each scenario brings with it something for us to negotiate and our sex is more adventurous than ever. Perhaps because we learnt new moves elsewhere, or perhaps because we have a reinvigorated sense of desire for each other, knowing that someone elsewhere has found this body in front of you desirable in new ways too. Our open relationship wasn't born out of a lack of sex. Don't worry, we've had that phase, and we really did consider going open. But we decided then that if we were ever to do it, it couldn't come from a place of trying to cure a wound or fill a gap. That's when the primary partnership ends. In fact, we'd only recently talked about getting married, and then we decided to try the idea that non-monogamy might be an even more immense, powerful commitment to each other than a ring and a register. How could that be possible? How could sleeping with other people be more of a commitment than marriage? Because in sleeping with others, you are allowing your partner a deeper expression of their desires. Marriage is fantastic in many ways, but it is also a means of state control, one which produces couples who care for each other and children who will become workers. But in the case of openness, I am committing to the fullness of his desires and mine, and the risks that come with expressing them. Commitment is another word I got wrong too. I always equated it with sacrifice but I'm coming to learn it means a willingness to understand the changes in a person, to understand their fullness. Of course, there are hard parts. With certain aspects, silly insecurities, double standards, needing to know every detail, you have to take on the individual responsibility of self-management of some of your own emotions. You have to accept that sometimes you are going to feel strange things and that your partner cannot be responsible for curing them or even always listening to them if they are unfair and unfounded. I'd been on multiple dates with someone and felt deep worry when he told me he was going on a second. This was a feeling I had to, with the help of generous friends, self-manage. And lo and behold, he came home after what he described as an impossibly average date. Something I've come to learn, something necessary for the success of truly any relationship, is that love is not control. Monogamy, too, is not control, and this is not my accusation. Because whether monogamous, open, polyamorous, the terms of the relationship should be agreed upon by each person within it, mutually, and not simply put there because it's what, literally, the Bible says. I have radical queer friends who adore monogamy. I've met viscerally dull couples who are radically polyamorous. There's no rhyme or reason for who it fits. But the point is that non-monogamy is actually about care. It's about seeing your partner and yourself 
as someone separate to you who has desires, feelings, emotions that they want to, and should be able to, share with other people, not just you. For us, at least, it's created a dynamic of tantalising flux. One where sometimes you feel lonely, sometimes you feel powerful, sometimes you feel more in love than ever. But in understanding these dynamics that whirl around inside and between us both, it feels more likely than ever that neither of us will find a better partner. Because if we can learn with empathy, compassion and selflessness to understand each other in what is deemed such a testing situation, if we can both let each other go for an evening every now and then, the reunion feels so much sweeter. Because you come home to someone who is committing to work hard to see you, to make space in their complicated emotional life for yours. And vice versa. That feels like more commitment, more love, than anything I've experienced before. That was What If He Finds Someone Better? The Agony and the Ecstasy of an Open Relationship by Tom Rasmussen Read by Dan Starkey That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Emma Stannard and Dan Starkey and presented by me, Evelyn Miller. This episode was produced by George Cooper. Original music by Axel Cucutier. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens and Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.